Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Abbas Kiarostami, a director that has quite a reputation. Some would say an intimidating one. Uh, that's, in fact, what I was about to say to you. This episode scares me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because the people who love Kiarostami... Like, there is no other filmmaker. Yeah, like, it, this is cinema for them. Yeah, and, it, and it's almost like a spiritual connection to him. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. I like Kiarostami. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you like Kiarostami, too. I do, but, yes. But, but, like, we're casual fans of Kiarostami, you know? Yeah, well, I think it, it, his films come with a level of challenge to them. That he's someone that I respect a lot. Like, I would go see his films when they played, like, at the Cinematheque that, like, the University of mm-hmm. Toronto did. That's why I saw Taste of Cherry when they played on 35mm. I saw it there, too, yeah. But I have to say, like, I don't own any of his movies on Blu-ray. DVD. It doesn't resonate emotionally in ways that it does with someone like Johnson Rosenbaum, or yeah. who loves to talk about Kiarostami and actually literally wrote the book on him. Yeah, and in fact I was in my head thinking of him in comparison to some of the other kind of slow cinema auteurs. You mm-hmm. know, the ones, uh, like, I don't love... Tarkovsky. Them. Yeah, I don't love him the way I love Brisson yeah. or the way I love Ozu. Um, and uh, I was kind of hoping that this week perhaps we could uh, open that up a little. Maybe he would open up for me. And I still am not in love with him, but I respect him more than ever. And I I feel like I am at a, at a good stage in my lifelong journey with Kiarostami. The interesting thing about Kiarostami is that out of all of those kind of art house masters... He's the one that's the most metatextual about his work. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to go see a Kiarostami film and not think about him making movies mm-hmm. because his masterpieces like Close Up are about making movies and art and cinema. Even his 1992 film, Life and Nothing More, is about a Kiarostami analog driving through Iran looking for the boy that starred in Kiarostami's film, Where is the Friend's Home? So, like, I think that that's something that I find really fascinating about him, that for a filmmaker who is often discussed in terms as being kind of, he does something that nobody else does Mm -hmm. in the best way possible, that his movies are inherently about his movies, and it's almost impossible to separate both of them. Yeah, and in fact, maybe Brisson and Ozu came to mind to me, because like them, he's somebody who has this totally unique style. Mm -hmm. Somebody who, you know, is not really uh, a cinephile the way that some directors are, like almost seems to come at his style through his own... Yeah, finely developed set of principles and he really adheres to them. But also the films are intimidating because they demand a lot from the audience. Uh, A quote by Kiarostami that somewhat sums up his uh, methodology is, I believe in a cinema which gives more possibilities and more time to its viewer. A half-fabricated cinema, an unfinished cinema that is completed by the creative spirit. I think for some, uh, that can be a little distancing. For some, like, say, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who I'm sure we'll be referring to a lot in this episode, it's uh, exciting because it's participatory. It's almost democratic. So we should explain to people who don't know who this is that Kiarostami is an Iranian director who was born in 1940 in Tehran. He worked uh, principally for the Center for Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults for a long time where he started a film section and he 
made shorts and commercials. What's mm-hmm. funny about his early career is that he was known as the commercial director in Iran, mm-hmm. as in that he could bring a level of slickness to ads that other people couldn't. And that when he finally got into making feature films, like his career working for this organization, uh, also known as Kanan, kind of seeped into it. Like one of his first big movies, 1987's Where is the Friend's Home, is about a young boy who sees a classmate get punished at the beginning of the picture because the classmate didn't complete his homework. And then when the protagonist goes home, he realizes that he took that classmate's um, workbook. And if he doesn't get his classmate's workbook back to him, then that classmate will be expelled. Mm. And so this film, right from the get-go, you're starting to see Kiristami work in feature length with kids, which would be his early preoccupation. And you also see basically what defines almost all of his films, which are quest narratives. And I don't mean these in the classical hero's journey sense. I mean them literally of characters going through a landscape, most often Iran, looking for something. Mm. And as Kiristami's cinema evolved, that destination became less and less important. He's also somebody, though, that even though uh, he was a very prolific filmmaker, he didn't come through the usual channels that make filmmakers. Even early in his career, when he was was working with some semi-professional collaborators. Um, I, I watched an interview with him where he was talking about Charlie Chaplin, and he was talking about the sort of kinship he feels with Chaplin. And and in one of Kiristami's early films, he had this long shot where the camera was stationary, and somebody is in a distance walking towards the camera. And he compared this to a shot that was similar in Chaplin's The Kid. And Kiristami's collaborators around him said, oh, that's the easy way out. Like, you're not moving the camera because you're you're a coward somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're afraid of moving the camera. But as Kiristami said about himself and about Chaplin, in our films, there is a philosophy of life rather than a philosophy of cinema. So he's kind of more interested in, like, what's happening inside the frame than the way the camera moves, you know? Well, Kiristami is one of those filmmakers that when people first start going to film school and start to experience his films, they often react with a, well, my kid could do that feeling where his films are so simple that it feels like anyone could just go out and make them. Mm -hmm. Like A Taste of Cherry, it's just a guy driving around in a car for most of the time. But Jonathan Rosenbaum, again, actually summed it up really well, which is like, Kiristami is like Chaplin. Genius is making something look very simple, but in reality, if there was one frame kind of out of place, it would completely collapse Mm -hmm. for the viewer. Absolutely. So for the first film that we can talk about, uh, I think the one that people often go to the most is Close Up, which came out in 1990. And this film is the perfect movie about movies. Mm -hmm. The ones that people go, is it a documentary? Is it fiction? Because all of these elements are kind of smushing up against each other. And it also has a lot to say about the role that movies play in our life. Yeah, the way we relate to movies. And we should note that, like, Kirstami's film are specifically located in the place where he makes them, Iran. Mm -hmm. Like, culturally, and I think politically, they reflect what's going on in that specific moment. So, like, Kiristami's films, the more you look into them, the more, 
like there's stuff around them that inform them. It's very rare that you'll get everything out of his pictures just by going in blind and watching it. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, like a lot of his films rely on the fact that you've seen his other films. Like a real Kevin Smith's view of universe. <laughs> I have to admit, I thought about Kevin Smith a few times this week. <laughs> they both, uh, you know, like uh, scenes of people talking to each other, you know? Yeah, that's right. Just pop culture references flying over all over the place. Yeah. Just like in Close Up, because Close Up is based on an actual event that was happening and Kurosami dropped the project that he was making and said, well, I want to document this. And so what's the movie about, Will? It's about a poor man named Hossein Sabzian who decides to just start impersonating a well-known Iranian director named Mohsen Makbalaf. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, And he sort of infiltrates the life of an upper middle class family in Iran, say, hey, I'm going to make a movie about you. And he lets this subterfuge go on because he loves the idea of this upper middle class family respecting him. And he loves just being able to play the part of a film director. Now, that synopsis sounds pretty straightforward, but the actual movie starts at the end with him being arrested, and the bulk of the film is actually this man in the actual real court case talking about his experiences. It feels like almost like 65% of the movie is just a close-up on this guy just talking about what he felt and why he did the things that he did. But not just that, there are also reenactments. So Mm -hmm. Kiristami had this man, like, play the part uh and he had the family you know play their parts as well you know to to show how this came about and i think he was able to do this probably partly because he didn't shoot them there at the same time there's a lot of shot reverse shot you know but you still get scenes where like the con man and i use that word very broadly because he himself says that like this is not something that he would regularly do but he kind of got in this situation and took advantage of it actually like passing himself off as a famous director in the bus where he met that woman or him about to be arrested as it's happening around him. It's There's a level of surrealness that you wouldn't get unless you knew what went into making the movie. Like, the film starts with... Uh, these people playing themselves, but it's really reading about it and then watching the film that it really sinks in. This introduces a recurring theme of his movies about the nature of identity. Like, if you're a film director, you know, what makes you a film director? Can you just say you're a film director? If you think you're a film director, is that enough? If uh, How dishonest? Because we're always playing roles. Mm -hmm. Like, that's you know, one of the central theses of all of his movies. And so like this uh, man that's impersonating this director, you get a sense that like the family actually liked him while he was there and he's giving them advice and stuff. But the moment they learn he wasn't who he was, all of that disappeared. It To bring up a very dated pop culture reference, do you remember the book A Million Little Pieces? Yeah. That came out and everybody's like, oh, it changed my life, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then it came out that the author just invented it. Everybody's like, oh, it's trash. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But, you know, Kiristami in a weird way, I think, pays tribute to this guy's artistry Mm -hmm. by having him reenact these moments. Because, you know, in the trial, they talk about you're clearly good at being an actor. Why not just be an actor? Mm -hmm. He said, well, playing a film director is a role. Yes. So Kiristami like allows him to play the film director again, and you can see how good he is at it. And how much this is something that he wants to do. And like in a lot of Kiristami's film, this is really a film also about lower class meeting up with like the middle class, like Hossein Sabzian. He says like, I want to be a film director, but there's no way that I could ever make a film because I just don't have the money to do it. And looking into his life, he actually wrote 
tons of scripts that he kept sending to directors and would just get rejections and rejections. So, like, what else is he supposed to do? Yeah, he's a bit of a, like, Iranian Rupert Pupkin, by the way. Yeah, oh, and he by, is. And by the way, to your point about class, like, I, I appreciate... Uh, you know, it's maybe a bit of a cliche thing to say, but uh, we see a certain image of Iran uh, mm-hmm. in in our news over here. And like his films show you a much more like complex uh, depiction of what the actual like way of life in Iran is, that there is a class system, you yeah. know, and that that class system and the way that they interact is something that we never think mm-hmm. of because as like middle class North Americans, we have a very fixed like look of what Iran is. Yeah. But then you have even just the opening of close up, the journalists running from house to house looking mm-hmm. for a tape recorder mm-hmm. and they're all these gated communities. Uh, it's just an image that we don't get a chance to see. So it's a movie that that has a lot to say about class, about the nature of identity, about the way art affects us, about, you know, just uh, just our desire to, like, make something of our own lives. But it's so deceptively simple, mm-hmm. you know? And it is a film that is very clear, I would say, because mm-hmm. Kiristami, as he went along, especially like something like Taste of Cherry... He liked to talk about how he loved the idea of viewers bringing their own interpretations to things. Mm -hmm. That if you don't have everything given to you, that you're going to bring your own emotional resonance to the pictures that are happening on screen. Close Up is fairly Mm self-contained. Like it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. And there's an emotional journey that the people watching get to go along Mm -hmm. that a lot of Kiarostami's films later on in his career wouldn't deliver. And because so much of it is this trial, you get to hear the guy like explain himself. Yes. And there's no artifice to what he's saying Mm. beyond what he's bringing himself to like this environment. But there's like, there's no acting in the conventional sense, even though that he is talking about how he played somebody else in court where he has to make himself look good in front of Kiarostami's cameras. I find him quite moving, by the way. I do too. Like by the end of the movie, I think you're kind of sympathetic to him and you're kind of like, well, obviously this is illegal and like, maybe it should be punished but like he clearly didn't do a lot of harm no he didn't (laughs) and you feel like the people that he tricked were more insulted about being tricked than he they were about him just coming into their lives and that raises i think an interesting issue about class Mm -hmm. right like if you're tricked by a poor guy who are you then yeah Yeah. and i think that's one of the most important parts of close-up because there's like so many like little funny asides like the fact that the family, the two sons, studied to be civil engineers and they can't get jobs as civil engineers. And one of them's like, oh, my brother works as a baker. And the mom's like, no, no, no. He doesn't work as a baker. He's the manager of a bakery. <laughs> yes. Like, all that is, like, very important text to what's going on mm-hmm. and that defines everything. Like, all these little details and stuff like that. And at the same time, Kiarostami is defining the way that he would continue with his filmmaking style, which is, like, the opening of the movie, you get... Basically, all the information you need right from the get-go as a journalist explains to uh, a taxi driver what he's about to go do, which leads to the most baffling statement I think I've seen in any film we've done for the Important Cinema Club, where he goes, you know, really important journalists like Peter Bogdanovich. And I actually rewinded and went, did he say Peter Bogdanovich? And he did. Well, clearly he's bought uh, Who the Devil Made It. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, pieces of Time. Pieces of Time, uh, yeah, yeah. The criticism of Peter Bogdanovich. And he's watched, uh, directed by John Ford. All of these are great pieces of journalism. You should know that. <laughs> and then, like, the journalist gets to the house, and he leaves the car to go do the arrest, and you just sit with the cab driver, who just chit-chats with the army guys behind him. And there's a long shot of just a bottle rolling down a hill. Hypnotic. Yeah. Just going down a hill. Kiristami likes, you know, quotidian details, much like Ozu did. You yeah, know? exactly. Other than close-up, I think
think the film that's associated with Kiyosami the most is A Taste of Cherry. It won the Palme d'Or the year it came out. It uh, rose the ires of people like Roger Ebert. Who famously gave it one star. He did? He gave it one star. And why did he give it one star? Uh, he thought it was boring. Mm. And, he, and uh, you know, fair enough. Uh, and I believe that he... Actually, no, not fair enough. He, that's, that's bad. He vocalized something like... At this point, Kiarostami is trying to cater to the international audiences, giving them the idea of what they expect art or specifically Iranian films are supposed to be. Oh, well, I don't like that. I mean, I I think he said that in the context of like trying to... There were other Iranian directors mm-hmm. that he liked more, and yes. say you should you should look at this sort of thing. But I think that's a that's a bad faith interpretation on his part. I, I know there's another review where he accused Kiarostami of arid formalism. Mm. Um, so well, you know. Kiarostami, like you just uh, mentioned there, he inspired a lot of filmmakers, and I I don't want to do like a bad faith assessment as well because a lot of them made great movies like uh, The White Balloon, which is a fantastic film that was done by a protege of Kiarostami. That was Jafar Panahi, was it? Yeah, it was. And um, even Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, mentions in his book on Kiarostami that these people that work with Kiarostami or these Iranian filmmakers realize that like if they started to kind of make films in Kiarostami's style, they would start getting attention at international huh, film festivals. Interesting. So it tastes a cherry. Uh, I mean, uh, to be fair to Ebert, uh, I, I mean, I think this is a very good movie, but uh, it is a difficult film. I mean, Kiristami <sighs> himself said, I don't mind if someone dozes off during my films as long as they dream about it later. <laughs> so that's a, a pretty clear admission that like, listen, I know it's slow. I know nothing is really happening, but I want it to get under your skin. So the film is about a man who's driving a Range Rover just around, you know, rural Iran, oftentimes traversing the same roads over and over again, because uh, as we gradually come to realize, he's looking for somebody who will help him commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who he's going to swallow a bunch of sleeping pills, lie down in a grave that he's dug, and the person that he hires is going to come, you know, throw some rocks on him. If he is alive, wake him up. Uh, if he's dead, bury him. And the viewer brings whatever interpretation they want to this act that's about to be committed. Why is this guy doing it? I mean, you get hints with the conversations that he's talking about with people, but you never get anything concrete. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, Kiarostami is going, listen, we want you to take this however you want to take it. Is this man lonely? Is he looking for just some companionship, someone to talk to, to explain the reasons why he would be doing this? Maybe. Even Kiarostami, in an interview, hinted at the fact that, like, the guy drives by some construction workers at the beginning of the movie. And if he picked those guys up and said, I'm going to give you money to kill me, they would have done it. But he's not looking for that. He's looking for someone that he can actually have a conversation with. The first construction worker that he picks up uh, shoes him away because he thinks it's uh, a gay hustle. Mm -hmm. But he ends up interacting with three people for the most part. The first one is a teenage Kurdish soldier uh, who ends up running away. By the way, uh, spoilers. Although I think this is an unspoilable film. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's spoilable. Uh, The second one is... You will believe the final (laughs) twist. No one may enter after the first 20 minutes. The second is a seminarian who argues against suicide. And uh, the third one is an old taxidermist who is also not in favor of suicide, but he agrees because he needs the money to help his sick son. Showing this level of class. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of even this guy having a car to drive around in is a definition of class because like in close up these people who lived in a uh, walled off kind of giant house say they don't own a car mm-hmm. taste of cherry is a movie that withholds much of what you expect from a movie it doesn't really have 
yeah, a clean story. It doesn't give you a backstory. Oftentimes the shots are kind of these God's eye view shots from a distance of the car moving while you hear dialogue. Um, you know, very beautiful. This car sort of framed against these vast landscapes, these vast hillscapes, or more poetic shots just of like birds flying or laborers working. Kiarostami also doesn't give you a lot of what you expect in the dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is very, you know, rich and wonderful, but, you know, he never shoots the two characters in the same frame. shot. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there's a reason for that is that Kiarostami... Like uh, another famous art house master, Mr. Jean-Luc Godard, uh, mascot of the Important Cinema Club, he would often have the actors improvise the dialogue, but not necessarily like have to make it up on the spot. But through an earpiece, he would feed them the dialogue as they were going along, and then they would then repeat it. Or he would actually ask them the questions and then just need like a simple answer back. But he would also do things like there's a shot where the young Kurdish soldier uh, has to look shocked. And Karastami evoked that by asking him to reach for something in the glove compartment. Oh, but there's a gun there. Yes. So he looks so it's unsimulated shock. And it's just contextually changing how that shock is achieved. Like there's always those famous stories of directors like firing a gun so a crowd will like jump. Yeah. And that's essentially what Kiarostami is doing at like a macro level mm -hmm. to get these kind of reactions. In the movie The Wind Will Carry Us, there's a scene where a character asks a young boy like, do you think I'm a good man? And the boy goes, uh, yeah, I think you're a good man. And he looks like shy and nervous and he's blushing. And that's because it was actually Kiarostami who asked him that question and the boy didn't like Kiarostami. Mm -hmm. So his answer was a polite one, but one that had a little bit of like uncomfortableness around it. Taste of Cherry really does feel like kind of like living a life in flux. Like mm -hmm. you're about to commit suicide. So like your life is just stripped down to this moment right now. And I, like, you, I, you know, like I saw it on the big screen and I actually like kind of dozed off every now and then you woke up and you're still just riding down this road in this mm. car. It feels like you say like this moment in your life because nothing big or dramatic is happening. Yeah. It's like you're just coming in and out of this long car ride. But you could be dead tomorrow. Yes. You know, and, <laughs> and so like here you are in this moment um, and you're also like surrounded by people who are still alive. You're surrounded by birds who are alive or workers uh, or like, you know, he, there's one point where he drives up to a construction site and he's going to commit suicide, I think, hopefully by having like an avalanche fall on him mm -hmm. or like having having like dust suffocated. What, what, what is his plot in that scene? Like, uh, I, I don't know exactly. Sorry, when you said him going around trying to commit suicide, I just thought of the Jerry Lewis film, Cracking Up. Well, you, th you thought about that because I made that joke to <laughs> yeah, you earlier. Uh, I, actually, I see a lot of like uh, similarity with Jerry Lewis and Kiristami. Um, okay, first of all, like that suicide scene is like tries to commit suicide and like the construction worker comes up to him and says like, Hey, you better get out of here. Mm -hmm. So it's like, like the world is indifferent. Yes. <laughs> to, to no one software. cares. Yeah. Yeah. But he reminds me of Jerry Lewis, you know, not only, not only does this movie remind me a lot of cracking up, but like the arbitrary nature of identity and just how easily identity can be like multiplied or abstracted. And also like the fact that so many of his characters are just like losers mm -hmm. uh, who want to fit in. All of this reminds me of Jerry Lewis. Also, what is real? What is not real? Absolutely. What is like celebrity and what does that mean to the individual? Yeah. Like even Taste of Cherry, 
at the end, you're like, oh, well, the movie's over. Somehow, Kirstami has not made any metatextual references to making a movie or his previous films. And then, boom, we cut to behind-the-scenes video footage of Kirstami just on the edge of the frame, just directing a scene. And then the camera goes over to a bunch of soldiers just marching. And by the way, this is exactly like the ending of Jerry Lewis's The Patsy. <laughs> is it? Because in that movie, Jerry Lewis is, like, about to jump off the balcony and then uh, he pops up around the balcony. He's like, oh, uh, by the way, this is a movie. Uh, we're going to go to lunch now. Yep. It's, it's just a baffling ending. And it's it's like that. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that is that like that ending, I believe when they released it in Italy, they tested both versions. And audiences actually liked the version that didn't have that meta finale. Huh. So they actually cut it out. And that's the way that it went out it, theatrically. I like the meta finale. I don't think I could like fully explain it. Uh, no, it, it is a little bit confounding. And it actually asks the viewer to to layer on like more explanation like well why would he cut to that Mm -hmm. like what is the importance of these army guys training or the idea of seeing behind the scenes of this film it does feel cathartic Mm -hmm. um but it's not quite the catharsis you expect from this story especially that the story is building to an end point right and right before that cut happens you're like in a moment of suspense that you're like okay well what's gonna happen and then instead of giving you that solution, it pulls you out of it and shows you something else. I mean, you think like, maybe is this supposed to be heaven? Yes. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> heaven is making a movie, I guess, for Kirstami. Yeah. Um, so Kirstami, after A Taste of Cherry, he made more feature films. He made The Wind Will Carry Us, uh, one that people consider uh, one of his best. But mostly he went back into the world of shorts, kind of went into more of a like art installation world after mm-hmm. that because he became more involved in his photography and his poetry, which were very important for him. But also a key factor is that the government in Iran became more hostile to its, uh, let's say, artistic and intellectual class. You know, we all saw Jafar Panahi, who mm. was uh, put into house arrest and forbidden from making movies for 20 years. He's more prolific than ever, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that's another story. But Kiristami made his last two films in exile. There was Certified Copy, uh, and then there was uh, Like Someone in Love, which he made in Japan. Yeah, like his last last few Iranian feature films weren't even released in Iran. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Rosenbaum asked the co-author of the book he wrote on Kiristami, Mernaz Saeed Vafa, oh, was it censorship issues? Or And she's like, no, it's just the distributors thought they weren't commercials, so they didn't see the point <laughs> of releasing them theatrically in the first place. Mm. A certified copy, I think, is a good, like... Oh, it's Kiristami for beginners. It's uh, Kiristami's Before Sunset. Yeah, exactly. But it also has a lot of his themes. Again, uh, yeah, identity. Ide- yeah, identity especially. So uh, the plot is about two people that you think don't know each other. But as the film goes along, you realize, wait, do they know each other? And then you come to the realization, oh, wait, no, this is a movie. And Kiristami's actually playing with perception and what it means to look at someone and bring your own interpretation to them, even though that may not actually apply with all the information that you have. And Kiristami's last sort of fictional feature, Like Someone in Love, set in Japan, also deals with issues of identity. It's a three-hander about a young sex worker who is living a double life, really even a triple life, a client that she is going to service, who's an elderly translator who really just wants companionship. He's not even interested in sex. And her hot-headed boyfriend who doesn't know she's a sex worker. And this kind of strange, uh, difficult dance the three of them play together. Who knows what, you know, how different is somebody with one person than with another one. But at the same time, you still get those Kiristami-like 
driving in cars and uh, the reflections of the world are shown across the face of the young woman. And this is Tokyo, so it's all neon lights and stuff like that. You know, Like Someone in Love isn't like one of his most heralded films, but that scene of her driving in the car through Japan while she's listening to the phone messages from her grandmother hit me really hard. Yeah, It's a film that I read a lot of people say that they didn't like that much because it showed a hardening of Kiristami. They considered a more cynical picture than his earlier films. Yeah. And that it actually ends in an act of violence in a way that none of his other films do. I don't know. I found it very powerful. Mm. Uh, You know, the Kiristami heads will perhaps uh, have a a more nuanced interpretation than I will. But Maybe it's because it's too definite for those people. There's less interpretation about what's happening. I think the relationship between the young woman and the old man was like very moving and powerful to me. And Kirstami has said that that old man was not an actor at all. He was an extra and he brought him onto the Mm -hmm. film and didn't even let him know that he would have the main role in the picture. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, could you say these three uh, pages of dialogue? And the old guy's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Because Kirstami was like, if I tell him he'll be the lead, he's going to be scared and then I won't get the performance that I want from him. Yeah, that's another similarity he has with Brasson, mm-hmm. like that uh, use of non-actors for their naturalness. And Kiristami, what I always think about when I watch his movies is there's this level of distancing of like, how did he get that effect? Because the more you read about him, the more difficult it is to just like, let myself be enveloped in what's happening because I watched a short that he made called Where Is My Romeo from 2007. It was part of the uh, Cannes Chacun Son Cinema um, kind of programming. Mm -hmm. And the film is just close-ups of women's faces as you hear in the background the score and dialogue from Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And you see these women kind of get emotional as the soundtrack plays when in reality he just put the camera on these women and said think of your most devastating relationship i he just captured that and he layered on the kind of contextual meaning that it never had do you think that's like exploitative in any way or i'm not sure how i would feel in that situation Mm. i know that kiristami didn't really have a reputation for people like feeling betrayed by him. Mm -hmm. He seems to have had cordial uh, and even like close relations with most of his collaborators. Yeah. Um, I I think that he, while he may surprise people of how he reaches that final point or the way that he utilizes Mm -hmm. emotions, I don't think he is damaging them in ways that you sometimes hear filmmakers will do. Yeah. Like even someone like Kubrick who will do like 50 takes to get that perfect non-pulse performance till he's battering it into people. Mm-hmm. Kiristami doesn't really do that because he wants something that's real in the moment as mm-hmm. opposed to honing it away. Yeah. In conclusion, Abbas Kiristami. Good director. He's Iran's Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Michael Carr. He goes, hey there, guys. I was outraged when I heard you didn't get an email last week. You two should be swimming in fan mail each week. And although I can see how the Asylum episode wouldn't have inspired the best reaction from ISCC listeners, it still reeks of injustice to the self-professed superfan. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Finally. (laughs) I was hoping people would be like, I work for the Asylum. Here's the inside dirt. But we didn't get anything like that. No. I was actually planning... It's crazy we got no acknowledgement from the asylum. None. None not, at not, all. Not a favor. I mean, I wasn't very nice to them. No, you weren't. I mean, how often has have people actually tried to, like, break into what makes them tick? Never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we should have accolades. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
As sad as I was that you were left on the bench in the great dodgeball game of podcast fandom last week, <laughs> it did get me thinking about a good question to ask you both. What do you think is the most underappreciated film by a great director? My mind went straight to Barry Lyndon by Stanley Kubrick and wonder what you th- thought of the film. Also, following on from your Bad Herzog episode, I always thought that Into the Abyss, a documentary about the death penalty and the gray areas in a specific murder case, is largely overlooked by many of his fans. Bit of a niche question, I know, but I thought you would appreciate... My attempt at relevance. Well, thank you, Michael. Anyway, I should probably wrap things up, as I imagine I won't be the only person writing in the wake of the Spike Lee episode, which was great, by the way. Also, I'm probably going to be the only person asking such a strange and inane question as this. Yours sincerely, Mikey Carr. Well, thanks very much for the letter, Mikey. And underappreciated films. That's actually a good question. Uh, and a very broad one. That makes me go like, oh, wait, I, I didn't think of anything before reading this letter. Now, the thing about having the internet around is that, like, Every directors, if they're, you know, one of those canonical directors, like they'll all have like it, a, a defender. It's funny to think of Barry Lyndon as an underappreciated film at this point, because everything by Stanley Kubrick has been canonized to the point of like, oh, well, like all of his films are great. Right? I feel like Barry Lyndon might have been underappreciated when it came until, out. But even until recently, mm. now I think it's definitely picking up. Yes. And actually, I think Barry Lyndon might be his best movie. Um, yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. It's not the one I would watch right now, but like <laughs> it's the one that is like the, like the perfect encapsulation of his worldview. And like underappreciated films is like you always want to go to people like, oh, well, Hitchcock, like which one's uh, uh, one of my favorites that nobody talks about. Yeah. And it's difficult when a director, like we said previously, is so big that you're like Jamaica Inn. And then you look on the Internet, it's like, oh, man, a book on Jamaica Inn. <laughs> well, I guess it's not that underappreciated, is it? Well, I mean, the the examples that always come to my mind, which, again, probably aren't as underappreciated as they used to be, but Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy Mm -hmm. and uh, Chaplin's Monsieur Verdu, both of which I think have, like, let's face it, they've got their due over the years, but they're still not in the top, like, three of movies that you associate with those filmmakers, Yeah, in the popular kind of culture, it's not movies that people go to when they hear the name of that director. Yeah. I would probably have to say that, like, John Woo's Bullet in the Head is a film that I don't think it's talked about enough. Like, mm-hmm. people who have seen it will go like, oh, yeah, that's John Woo's masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But, like, again, you say his name and people think Hardboiled the Killer, no Bullet in the Head, probably because it barely got any release in North America. And still doesn't have much distribution. No, it yeah. doesn't. And it doesn't have Chai and Fat in it. That's the problem, yeah. yeah. Even though that it does have Tony Lung, and he's an international Chinese star. Yeah. But, like, if you haven't seen Bullet in the Head... Watch it and just realize that it's not going to be the like crazy fun John Woo. It's still crazy and still has all the balletic action that he does, but it's in service of a much more cynical and downer vision. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's it's uh, a much pricklier movie mm-hmm. than the other two. And obviously, Sam Raimi's Crime Wave. Because, sure. <laughs> no. I, like, I, I actually like Sam Raimi's Crime Wave. I really like Sam Raimi's Crime Wave, but I always pitch it as, you're not gonna laugh. The same way I pitched 1941, Steven yeah. Spielberg's film. Oh, well, I feel that way about uh, Robert Altman's Popeye, actually. Maybe that, <laughs> that's another example. Which yeah, I that's think, another one that's... Which, I, you know, I think like is an incredible film. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it has flaws, but it's like, you know, the closest an American film has come to playtime. But like, underappreciated, again, you could say something like Speed Racer, but like yeah. in the time it's yeah. received a level of cult that has overshadowed the people that say that it's bad. Oh, oh one more. Uh, speaking of playtime, I think Jacques 
Octati's Trafique mm. is underappreciated because it came after Playtime. It's less ambitious. It feels a bit like a step backwards. But I mean, I still think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, underappreciated films, oftentimes, they come from filmmakers in their late period of their career. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have people that are going to be like, well... Brian De Palma's, uh, I don't know, Passions. I mean, that's not a good movie. Oh, but... um, uh, the 1517 to Paris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Those are the truly underappreciated films of a master. Mm-hmm. I think this is something that like we could easily do a Patreon episode of, of yeah. like, our top 10 lists of favorite underappreciated films. Yeah. So I can guarantee you we will get back to that at a point in the future. So the next letter is from Kay Parrington. And the subject is, it's a letter from a listener who loves Jean Rollet and wants to hear your thoughts about his films. Hey, Justin and Will. I'm a recent listener, but immediate fan, having gotten into your podcast via the wonderful Doris Wishman episode. Ah, thanks. Thank you. As a trash cinema and exploitation buff, I love how obscure you two are willing to go for podcast topics. Wishman, Finley, Metzger, Matt Farley, who you two introduced me to, and I thank you. Oh, thank you. On this note of exploitation weirdos, I was wondering if either of you are familiar with Jean Rollin and or have any intention of doing an episode on his work. He's my favorite filmmaker, so much so that I'm writing a thesis on his films for university. Barring Rollin, perhaps I would argue lesser contemporary like Jess Franco. Anyway, thank you for making such a great show. I look forward to your future discussions of the heights of cinematic class and the depths of cinematic depravity. Cheers, K. Perignon. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, Jess Franco will happen. Yes. We'll say that he's already on a list that we <laughs> talked about last week. And yeah. he's a filmmaker that has come up a lot, but we haven't discussed him because anytime he comes up, we go, well, we just did this. Like, we can't do Jess Franco. You gotta, you gotta space out the trash guys a little bit. Yeah. You know? And uh, we've been kind of waiting for uh, Stephen Thrower's second volume of <laughs> Jess Franco film analysis to come out so we can get the full picture. And also, the thing about Jess Franco is he's made 180 movies Mm -hmm. and you know on the one hand you could say you've seen one you've seen them all but it's not true like only well tim lucas would say that you haven't seen a jess franco film until you've seen them all and i frankly agree with him Mm -hmm. like um they all seem like just pieces in a puzzle because he's one of those guys where um Many of them are very personal. They may not be good, but like they're straight out of his subconscious. You keep hearing about once it's like, oh, there's another detour in his career and another one and another one. And because he made so many films and he did them under such impoverished kind of circumstances, his vision is so pure. Yeah. And he's a filmmaker. I mean, I don't want to blow my Jess Franco load right from the beginning. Yeah. That. What I love about him is that he made the slick blockbusters early in his career. And then he just went, this doesn't interest me. Like, I don't care about doing musicals or like spy films or action films. I've proven that I can do this. I just want to go make the grossest pornos with my wife. Yes. <laughs> like, that's essentially how his career came to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we'll definitely talk about him. We're talking about doing him in Shocktober. But I think that there's more than just horror films to Jess Franco. I think he gets put in that box mm-hmm. because that is something very sellable. Mm-hmm. But I think that his horror films are some of his weakest pictures. Yeah. So we'll probably do them um, after that. But yeah. I feel by the end of the year, we will have done Jess Franco. Yeah, that's our pledge to you. And as far as Jean Renan goes, I'm definitely a fan. But I wouldn't say that I'm 
enough of a super fan that I could like go and record an episode about him right now. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say that I've never seen any Jean Roland films, even though he's somebody who I've wanted to explore for a long time. When you're talking about an auteur, you could throw Jean Roland on the table because he is a filmmaker that will return to the same scenes, the same visual ideas, and just keep exploring them in different ways. And that's kind of why I haven't got to him yet, because he seems like somebody who I kind of want to immerse myself in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope you know. love vampires, because yeah. that's his thing. Yeah. Uh, I do have a copy of of Lost Girls, the phantasmagorical cinema of Jean Roulet, which was published by Spectacular Optical, sitting on my shelf, just waiting for us to do an episode about him so I can pull it off and read it cover to cover. Because that is an essay book that is all women critics writing about the cinema of Jean Roulet, which is very kind of women-oriented. So uh, yeah, Jean Roulet, definitely on our list and we'll get to him, but we will probably get to Jess Franco first. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for the letter. And again, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Pod podcast at gmail.com and this week on our patreon we talked about it because the audiences have been demanding it alec baldwin's the shadow but not just alec baldwin's the shadow the whole cinematic legacy of the popular radio and pulp character the shadow and you may be going wait i know what he looks like but i don't know what he does or what popular media i would know him from the shadow knows (laughs) so you'll just have to listen to it and find out a small cameo by orson welles and one of the rare episodes where we watch a bunch of movies where we really well you have to listen to find out (laughs) (laughs) it's five dollars a month it's uh, patreon.com slash import cinema club podcast you get four episodes a month in our entire back catalog so next week French New Wave haven't done it in a while we're gonna tackle everyone's favorite Francois Truffaut what if my favorite is Jean-Luc Godard I know I'm just saying that to get a rise out of you we know your favorite is Jean-Luc Godard Truffaut is a filmmaker that I've always enjoyed but I feel like there's always been a piece missing for me to feel like really passionate about his work mm-hmm. in the way that like other people feel passionate about his work. Like Godard, he's a guy who made a bunch of films right from the get-go that are like stone-cold classics, 400 Blows, Jules and Jim, uh, Shoot the Piano Player. And then he went on and did other stuff. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he became the guy that he uh, criticized early in his career. 100%. Yes. But we're going to talk about that when we do next week's episode. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will. Sloan. Thanks for listening. When I was uh, poking around the internet for this episode, I stumbled on a video of Abbas Kiristomi at the Tiff Bell Lightbox in 2016, so very shortly before his death, uh, doing a a Q&A there. And I was watching a bit of it, and I thought... Gee, I should have gone to this. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that feeling. Yeah, I mean, that's a feeling I felt probably a lot more when I was younger. Mm-hmm. This idea of like, if I miss this, I will never be able to see it ever again. And that's something that's true. That happens with a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. especially when we live in Toronto, where like a lot of big public cultural figures are coming, and like, if you miss like Johnny Toe doing his talks, like you're never going to see Johnny Toe talk ever again. Mm-hmm. And then. At a certain point, the Justin that would rush up to every single filmmaker when he would go to a film festival and get their autograph realized, why am I doing this? Yeah. Like, FOMO is something that, like, gets talked about a lot, especially with, like, public events, like concerts and movie stuff. This idea that, like, what if I don't see this person on stage? And then I, I took a step back and went... But why do I need to see them on stage? I think of all the people I saw on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, there are many that I've just straight up forgotten. Yes, because I realized one day that I am not the guy during a Q&A who's going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Because, honestly, 
whatever question I'm going to ask, like most Q&As, it'll be a dumb question. The person will just find an answer out of that somehow, and somebody else will probably ask it. I have sometimes asked questions at Q&A, but I always rehearse it in my head and I keep it to one or two sentences. That's the most important part. Very on the point. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I remember as a teenager asking long rambling Q&A, like as a 14 year old and getting like two word responses back and being like, why am I doing like... Obviously, I'm just asking a question to ask a question. So, yeah. like, just don't do it. If the question starts with, first of all, yes, then or, you know it's about This is a three-part question. Oh, it's like, terrible. oh, no. Terrible. But, like, the fear of missing out with movies is a funny phenomenon because movies are supposed to exist forever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can go to the big, see it on the big screen or you can watch it at home. And people argue, like, why would I go to a theater to see it where people take their phones out? Instead of just watching at home in the comfort of my own space with nobody annoying me. And Toronto is a town where, like, it's all about the theatrical experience and how special it will be. It's on 35mm, <laughs> filmmaker in attendance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, the 35mm thing is something that I'm increasingly concerned about a little bit. Because as I get older, I have FOMO less mm-hmm. for a lot of things. But for 35mm, I feel like I'm aware of the fact that this is going to become increasingly rare. Yes, absolutely. Even though it's a big draw right now, it's going to become more expensive to ship these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Studios are going to get even more leery than they already are of Mm -hmm. lending them out. Archives are going to get more hesitant than ever. Um, and you know, they're, they're not making them anymore. So yeah, I mean like talking about how FOMO is not something that I experienced that much. It's funny that my programming screening at Lazy Boss Film Society is all about hoping to generate that FOMO in people <laughs> to get them to come because we're showing movies that like you will not see anywhere else ever on a big screen. Right. And oftentimes on 35 millimeter prints when they've never been released on Blu-ray or DVD. So I'm like, you got to see these movies, guys. Like it'll never happen again. God, I'm going to look back so fondly on these <laughs> laser blast screenings, you know. Like, no I, retreat, no surrender, Blood Brothers. I saw that on 35 millimeter <laughs> yeah. film. I saw Stuart Gordon's Fortress on 35 millimeter thanks to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean like that's, I think, the one thing where FOMO, like, does affect me. Like, it's not seeing stuff at a film festival or seeing somebody up on stage. Mm-hmm. Because someone up on stage is essentially, like, I could watch it on YouTube. Like, it would be the same experience. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact of being, like, oh, my God, I saw this person. I can't. And, like, sharing the story with someone. And then they will roll their eyes and go, yeah, that's nice. Okay, like, you have to admit, though. Jackie Chan. <laughs> there are, Yes, Jackie Chan. There, but there have been some great moments, including Jackie Chan, of seeing them on stage. Like... Were you there when Ken Russell uh, did the Q and A after the Devils at the Bloor Cinema? You know, yes, the late didn't want to answer any questions. What a night! Yeah, so good. <laughs> but that's different. Like those are masters, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm thinking more about the idea of like someone that's hot and now being on stage and doing something. Mm. It's like not only will it not matter, they don't have a perspective to talk about their work in a way that I think would be. As interesting as it is Ken Russell, yeah. who doesn't give a fuck and is just like, mm, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And if and if Jackie Chan is there, we have an emotional connection yes. to him. So that's from different. Years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's more like I FOMO for me has been getting lessened by the idea of like, if I do this, this will impress someone. Because like a lot of stuff, right. I feel like you see someone go and do something and it's like something can turn around like, look what I did. Don't you guys feel bad? And it's like, I'm old. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah. I would have had to leave the house for that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
And I mean, this all came up because uh, the Royal Cinema is currently having a screening of 36 Chambers of Shaolin, where the RZA is doing a live score. He's to doing it. it right now, right? Right now, yeah, while yeah, we're yeah. recording this. Yeah. And obviously, me and Will are not there. Well, I tried to get a ticket. <laughs> me too. Yeah. But like, it wasn't a thing where I was like, I need to see this. Cause that, I was like, Man. Yeah, that's the thing. I actually forgot about <laughs> yeah. it until you mentioned it to me. <laughs> is that just old age? Like, it just doesn't matter anymore? Who are the people that like, you couldn't miss them if they were up on stage? Godard. Uh, well, obviously, Godard. Yeah. That will never happen. No. Uh, uh, Jackie Chan. Yes, again. Uh, I would love to, like, get John Woo's autograph. Yeah. And I that's not going to happen either. I think due to his age, I don't think he'll be traveling very much anymore. God, so many of my heroes died. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his last year, I went to Fan Expo just to see Adam West. Yes, that's right. Um, and you didn't get his autograph, did you? No. Okay. I spoke to him on the phone once many years ago, mm-hmm. um, but I just wanted to be in, you know, soak up the, the Adam West presence. Roger Corman. Yes, Roger Corman. And I think you've met him, haven't you? Like, I talked to him on the phone once. Okay, yeah, but if he if he suddenly came to Toronto to do something, I would definitely oh, be there. Yeah. And I would be bummed if I wasn't. Yeah, but also too old. Yeah, he's too old. Yeah. And, like, the thing again is, like, you're going to hear the same stories that you've heard a million times. Yeah, but that's okay. You know, with Roger Corman, it's like him he's one of those those guys who he's just living history yes you know i felt i feel this way like when i've seen Werner herzog introduce stuff it's mm. like my god this is the guy in Fitzcarraldo, like in burden of dreams and again Werner herzog he does have a shtick that he does every time yeah yeah but it's just like the the mere physical presence of him it's mm. like i can't believe this like almost like literary character exists in reality yeah that's the only fomo is that surrealness of like i can't believe this person is on stage in front of me talking yeah. That was kind of like we've talked about it where like Donnie Yen, where we actually shook yeah, his hand yeah, and yeah, talked yeah, to him, yeah. which is like, this is a real person. He is very not tall. <laughs> <laughs> 